Welcome. If you are new with us, we are so incredibly honored that you are here. And uh, I want to celebrate something just to emphasize uh, how honored we are for you to be here and how expectant we are for what God may do in your life. Uh, we've, over the last few months, we've had some seating issues in our 9.30 and 11 o'clock services where we've been running out of seats. And because we have so many people visit our church this time of year, and we believe that God is going to do something incredible in your life, uh, we just asked our church, man, would you guys be willing to move to either the 8 a.m., the 4.30, or the 6 p.m. to make space for the people uh, that God is going to uh, change uh, when, when they come? And I am happy to report to you that over 500 of our church family moved to those services. Can we give them a thank you? Thank you so much if you are one of those people. And if you are new with us, I just want you to know that is how much we believe that God uh, will do a work in your life and how honored we are to have you. So uh, that's great. Now, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and move on over to John chapter 18, John 18. And uh, we're starting a series today that, uh, that I believe is incredibly important. I believe some of you guys are going to, through this series, uh, really have almost a fresh vision to be able to see God uh, in a way that you've never seen him before. And let me explain why, uh, why this series. The title of the series is Jesus Outside the Lines. And we believe this series is so needed because uh, we have a tendency, people have a tendency to draw very sharp, distinct lines and decide which side of the line that Jesus is on. And so you see this all the time in culture where there's always an us and there's a them. Uh, There's a this side and then there's a that side. And we are absolutely, utterly confident uh, which side Jesus is on. And so what we'll be doing during this series is we'll be looking at some of those very hard lines that people in our culture tend to draw and just asking the question, where does Jesus fit with regard to the line? So let me give you a little preview of where we're headed in the series. Next week, we'll be asking the question, is Jesus, is he with the racial majority or ethnic minorities? Uh, The next week, we'll ask a question about life, issues of life. Is he for the unborn or is he for the poor? Uh, When it comes to religion and religious expression, the next week we'll ask the question, is Jesus, was he for a personal faith or an institutional church? Uh, And then the last week of the series is probably, it might be my favorite one, we'll be asking a question about his followers. We'll ask the question, are Jesus' followers, are they hypocrites or are they works in progress? Which one is it? Uh, Today, now here's what we're hitting today. We are kicking off with a bang. And today we're asking the question that is arguably the most tentative, uh, the most explosive in our culture. There are two issues that I was always taught growing up that in public social settings you never talk about. Uh, Those two issues are religion and politics. Let's talk about both, okay? It's going to be great. Let's do this. So today we're going to ask the question, red or blue, Uh, Republican or a Democrat. And uh, some of you are already uncomfortable. So let's do this together. It's going to be great. Deep breath, deep breath. Uh, And now here's why we felt so it it was so important to address this as a church and to ask this question about Jesus. There has never been a time in our culture where people were more harshly and emotionally divided uh, over political issues than right now. This is really interesting. I'll give you some examples of this. Pew Research, they just came out of this election cycle. And they did a study that showed that a fully 45% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats think the other party is so dangerous that it's a threat to the existence of the nation. So half of the nation thinks the other half of the nation is a threat to the existence of the nation. 
uh, coming out of this election cycle, uh, it, this was such an explosive season that coming out of that election cycle, uh, it, it seemed like uh, the either party was so passionately against what was going on with the other party that uh, they, were, uh, co- they were boycotting companies who simply showed any support for one side of the aisle or the other. Progressives uh, started a delete Uber uh, trending topic on Twitter to delete the app because the CEO of Uber showed some support for the Republican Party. Uh, there was a pr- uh, conservatives. Uh, they launched a boycott Oreos campaign because the leadership of Oreos uh, showed some support for the Progressive Party. By the way, I, I couldn't bring myself to boycott Oreos if they backed the Germans in World War II. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how you, how you do that. And this plays itself out uh, in religious lines. People in the church begin using political uh, affiliations as a litmus test of your faith. I heard there was this, this was really uh, brought home to me. There was a story of a pastor, a story that a pastor told me about a Sunday school class in his church where they all gathered on a, on a normal Sunday they came in and somebody walked in who had seen a bumper sticker from the other political party in the parking lot. And when it came time for the prayer request, this person very excitedly shared the fact that they'd seen this bumper sticker and they were so excited because this was a sign that a non-Christian person was attending the church. And they asked to pray for this person. After a long pregnant pause, another longtime Sunday school uh, member raised their hand and said, that's my car. (laughs) Awkward, right? And so we do that. We tend to kind of do this. We draw this very clear line. And we know exactly which side Jesus is on. It was very interesting being a pastor during this election cycle. I heard two very distinct things constantly. Absolutely no Christian could vote for Donald Trump. And then I also heard absolutely no Christian could vote for Hillary Clinton. So let's do this together. You guys ready? Okay. John 18. If you got your Bibles, go to John 18. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 33. Start with me in verse 33. This is one of those passages that you may have read it so many times you stop understanding what's actually going on. So let's see with fresh eyes. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So then verse 37, Pilate reiterates this question. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, again, this is one of those passages that you may have read so many times, you stop asking the question, what's really going on? Here's what's fascinating about this passage. All throughout the Gospels, we've seen Jesus brought face to face with religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests. This is the first time in the Gospels where Jesus is brought face to face with the political leaders of his day. And Pilate asks him a very pointed question. He asks it twice. Pilate's question to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I want to make something really clear. This is very important. Pilate is not asking Jesus a theological question. Uh, That's what we tend to think. We tend to think Pilate's asking Jesus the question, are you the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies? Listen, guys, Pilate is an unbelieving Roman governor. 
He doesn't care at all if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He's not asking a theological question. He's asking Jesus a political question. He is saying just a few years earlier, Herod the Great, who was a political leader in that region, had conquered Judea. And he had been given the title by the emperor of Rome. Here was the title he was given. The king of the Jews. Herod the Great had been given that title. You're the king of the Jews. Pilate isn't asking a theological question. He's asking a political question. He's saying to Jesus, are you a political leader? Are you a threat to the throne and the power of Herod? Uh, let me rephrase this question in a way that is more uh, you know, knowledgeable to us, more uh, familiar to us. He's asking Jesus, what is the relationship of your teaching to politics? What is the relationship of the church to the state? That's the question he's asking. Now, if you read very carefully, did you notice how Jesus responds to this question? Jesus responds not once, twice, with an intentional level of ambiguity. Twice, with an intentional ambiguity. Twice, he says to Pilate, you say it. You say it, an intentional ambiguity. Here's what's happening here. Jesus doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. Or to rephrase it another way, Jesus says yes and no. Okay, let me, let me put this in some categories for you. If you were to ask Buddha, are you a political leader? He would say, absolutely not. If you were to ask Muhammad, are you a political leader? He would say, absolutely yes. If you were to ask Jesus, are you a political leader? He would say, absolutely yes and absolutely no. Now, let me say it and let me tease this out for you. What Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, I don't, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. That means two things. One, That means Jesus does not have an earthly kingdom. So he is absolutely not political. On the other hand, it means that Jesus is saying, I absolutely do have a kingdom. And therefore, I am incredibly political with incredible political ramifications for my followers. Now, what he's doing, there are two mistakes that Christians and people who are examining the faith tend to make when they ask the question, what's the relationship of Jesus to politics? Uh, Let me hit both of these myths. I'm going to give two myths and, and they'll strike probably every one of us between, right between the eyes on one point, okay? So here's number one. Myth number one is this. Here's myth one. Christians should not be involved in politics. Uh, every now and then you'll hear statements like this bandied about by both Christians and people who are not people of faith, okay? <clears throat> you'll hear things like separation of church and state. By the way, we believe that, just not in the way that some people say it. Or you'll, say things, you'll hear things like, Josh, you can't legislate morality, And what they're saying is, man, Christians should not be involved in the realm of politics. That's what the implication is. But listen to me. But this is to forget that Christians are called by Christ to be a salt and light in the world. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, one of my favorite African-American preachers, I listened to him twice this week. Dr. Tony Evans, he gives the analogy, uh, the analogy of AIDS. And he points out that AIDS is a disease that wipes out hundreds of thousands of people every year. But he also points out that it's actually not the disease of AIDS that kills anybody. All AIDS does is it lowers and knocks out the immune system. And whenever the immune system of the body is knocked out, then we become susceptible to any number of other diseases that end up killing us. And then he goes on to make the point, the church is called to be God's immune system in the culture. 
that whenever there are things that the culture begins to let in that will inevitably destroy it, whether or not the culture believes that it will destroy it, it is the role of the church to stand in the place of the Old Testament and New Testament prophets and to cry out on behalf of the nation for what is true. Uh, If you're not tracking with me, let me give you one example of this. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., about 60 years ago, when the disease of racism had metastasized and was being confronted, maybe uh, for the first time in a head-on way, and it had infected our culture. Think about this. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he did not appeal to the will of the majority in our nation. Uh, He did not appeal to the history of the Supreme Court in our nation. If he had tried to appeal to either of those things, he would not have had a leg to stand on. So what did he do? He stood from pulpits across America and he thundered out passages from the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters of a mighty stream. And when people told him, uh, you can't legislate morality, he wisely responded with things, statements like, it may be true that a law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. You see, church... If you are a person who is politically inclined and you are a disciple of Jesus, listen to me. We need you involved in our nation's politics to shape the government that will rule over our grandchildren. And we have been given this call from Christ to be salt and light in a world that is rapidly in decay. All the time is in decay. So myth number one, Christians should not be involved in politics. Now, myth number two is where I'm going to spend a little more time because it's far more uh, accepted in our culture. And here's what it is. Myth number two is that Christians should be seeking to bring about a political theocracy. Uh, Let me explain what I mean by this. And there's a reason. Let me be really honest. There's a reason why this is very confusing. Uh, Because, uh, let me help you read your Bibles, actually. The reason this is so confusing is because there is both, listen, there is both continuity and discontinuity between the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let 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 me help you and help you understand why this is so confusing for some people with a little chart. What you're going to see up here is, let me, let me show you how this worked, the, how the kingdom of God worked in the Old Testament, okay? So in the Old Testament, first of all, you had a human king. There it is, king. You had a human king, somebody like David. So there was somebody that people could point to on earth and say, that's our king. He legislates the laws of God in our nation. And then you very clearly, you had a physical kingdom, a national kingdom with borders, a geographical, socio-political entity that was the kingdom of God. It was the nation of Israel. And you had very clear uh, national subjects, the Jews. Now, you guys who have read your Bibles very closely, have you ever noticed that people are constantly misunderstanding when they talk to Jesus? They're constantly misunderstanding statements of Jesus about the kingdom of God. Think about this. In Luke 17, the Pharisees are asking, when is your kingdom going to come? And what they were saying is, when are you going to conquer the Roman Empire and reestablish yourself as the king and set up a new national kingdom of God? And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, my kingdom is not coming in ways that you can see. You'll never be able to point here or there and say, there it is, or here it is. He said, no, my kingdom is in your midst he was, what Jesus was saying is, my kingdom is not coming on the throne in Rome. It's coming on the throne in your hearts. 
And I am calling, what he was saying to everybody, he's saying, I am calling every one of you to lay down your arms and become a disciple of mine. He said, you misunderstand my kingdom. I'll give you one other one, okay? And I'll explain the other side of the chart. You remember in Acts 1, after Jesus was raised from the dead, and all of Jesus' followers, they've been hearing him preach about the coming kingdom of God. And so do you remember what they asked Jesus in Acts 1? What do they ask him? They say, Jesus, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will you set up a political entity now that rules over this empire? And remember what Jesus said. He says, it is not for you to know times or dates. But, and then he says, listen, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you? He was saying, I am not giving you political power to rule. Oh, let me, let me make sure I get this right. He's saying my kingdom is not coming with political power in Rome, but with spiritual power in you. He was saying, I am not giving you power to conquer Roman armies. I am giving you power to convert Roman hearts. And that is how my kingdom is going to come. Now, listen. So what you're seeing is in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he's setting up a different type of kingdom. So in the New Testament, who's our king? We've got King Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's a kingship title. Where is the kingdom of God? Here's where it is. It's the church among all the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are in every nation in the world setting up a kingdom within a kingdom. And then who are the subjects of this kingdom? Spirit-filled Christians everywhere. So church, we've got to understand We are advocating for a different king and a different kingdom than simply the physical political entities of this world. Now, what I want to do really quick, when Christians get this wrong, when we New Testament Christians try to accomplish what happened in the Old Testament uh, kingdom and try to set up a physical, political uh, reign, a, a theocracy, I believe terrible things happen. And the kingdom of God is actually set back. Now, as I say these things, remember, I've already said that Christians are called to be salt and light among every kingdom they're in. But let me help us understand this, okay? So a few consequences that come out of us equating Jesus with a human system of governance or party, okay? Let me run through these really fast. Number one, what will happen is the church will inevitably end up losing its prophetic voice in the world. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does that mean? That means that there will be things in every human kingdom and every human political party that Jesus will both affirm and critique. That's what it means for him to say, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, if right now you are incredibly confused, you're like, Josh, you were just supposed to tell us which side he's on. And then we can leave and be angry at everybody that's on the other side. Okay. Well, let me help you understand how this works. Think about the earliest Christians uh, who converted in the Roman Empire, uh, who immediately went about and they tried to set up a revolutionary kingdom within the kingdom. Historians tell us that they were known for about seven very unique things. Now, this is a thought experiment. So you've got to put your thinking caps on for a second class, okay? Can you do that with me? Okay, so they were known for a few things. Number one, they absolutely refused to go to the Roman gladiatorial games. They said, man, we will not be involved in anything that uh, solicits murder that's bloodthirsty. Number two, they were against abortion and infanticide. 
There was a widespread Roman practice, particularly when a Roman family had a little girl who could not carry on the family name. Widespread Roman practice that those Roman families would carry an infant girl out to the desert and leave her to die so that they didn't have to give their family's resources to a girl who would not be able to grow up and carry on the family lineage. So Christians oppose this against abortion and infanticide. Number three, Christians were known as people who empowered and valued women in a way that no kingdom had ever empowered and uh, valued women. Women and widows flocked to the kingdom of God uh, when the church was launched in early Rome. Number four, they were against the Roman practice of same-sex, uh, same-sex activity. That was very different in their culture. They were against sex outside of marriage. That was very different in their culture. They were radically for the poor, incredibly and radically for the poor. They mixed. This was fascinating. It was the first time anyone had ever done this uh, widespread. They mixed races and classes together in their worship gatherings in ways that everyone outside considered scandalous. And they unequivocally preached that Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. Now, let me do a thought experiment with you really quick, class. Now, what if there was a group of people who believed all of those things that I just said in our culture? What if there were a group of people who, listen, one, rejected bloodthirsty sports, two, empowered women, three, reveled in the combination of races and classes, and four, were radically for the poor? Some of you hear that and you go, oh, that sounds terribly liberal. Okay, now, let me flip the question. What if there are a group of people in our nation who, on the one hand, one, forbade abortion and infanticide, two, uh, forbade sex outside of marriage, three, forbade same-sex practice, and number four, insisted that Jesus was the only way to salvation. Some of you are going, oh, that sounds terribly conservative. Do you see my point? The Bible calls us aliens and sojourners. It says that Christians among every nation in every epoch of history will never fit in. We will never fit in. So listen, let me ask you two what may be very uncomfortable questions, okay? So buckle your seatbelt. Let me ask you some uncomfortable questions. If you would call yourself somebody who is politically conservative, can you speak for issues of race, poverty, and raise your voice for the refugee? Or are you too afraid that that would lend credibility to the other side? On the other hand, if you're a person who would call yourself politically progressive, can you raise your voice for the sexual ethics of Jesus and the right to life for unborn people who are made in the image of God? Or are you afraid that that would lend credibility to the other side? Listen, church, listen. We have a choice to make. We can be partisan or we can be prophetic, we cannot be both. Listen, right there, I'm preaching 100% better than you're responding. (laughs) We can be partisan, or we can be prophetic, we cannot be both. And we are called to be salt and light among every kingdom of this world. So number one, if we equate Jesus with a human system of governance or a party, the church will inevitably lose its prophetic voice. Number two, when we do this, we end up dividing the body of Christ. We divide it in a way that it's not meant to be divided. There's a great little story uh, I ran across this week. That, that I'll give you an example of this. There's a, a pastor told me a story about a, uh, there was a kid, a, uh, a kid on a college campus who got to the very end of his uh, college career and he needed an A. 
And so he came to the uh, president of the university and said, uh, you know, President, what is the easiest class on campus? He said, oh, son, uh, there's a class on campus where it's, it's a class about birds, easiest class on campus. Sign up for it. That professor's getting ready to retire, and I guarantee you'll make an A. And so he signed up, and he came in, and to his horror, the first day of the class, he discovered that the teacher was so old that he died. And so there was a new, young, hotshot teacher who was trying to prove himself uh, you know, on the campus as, as a, you know, an amazing professor. And so first day of the class, he walks up to a little pull-down screen, and he pulled it down just a little to show the legs of a bird. And, uh, and he told the class, uh, he told the class uh, students, here's what we're going to do during this, uh, during this uh, class. There will be three times in this semester where I'll show you just the pictures of birds' legs, and I need you to tell me the order of the class, the phylum, and the species of the bird just based on the legs of the bird. And immediately the student just began to get incredibly frustrated, and he got up and he began to walk out of the class. And the teacher said, son, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm dropping this class. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. To name, identify all of the birds just by their legs. And he just began to walk out. And so the teacher said, well, I at least need to know your name. And the students lifted up his pant legs and said, well, you tell me. <laughs> That's what it was. Well, now listen. <laughs> now listen. Christians, I love that little story. It's only tangentially related to anything I'm talking about right now. Uh, now, but listen, Christians very often, we do this. Christians can get to a spot where they begin to look at other Christians and say, pull out your voter registration and I'll identify you only by your voter registration, whether you're really a person of faith or not a person of faith. Let me give you an example of this, just to, just to get, get some categories in your head. Have you ever noticed that when the Bible describes Jesus' disciples, there are two disciples uh, who are given political suffixes in the lists. One, you have Matthew the tax collector. And on the other hand, you have somebody who's called Simon the zealot. Now, here's what you may not know. The zealot was a political term. Uh, that was a political party that was radically against the imperialism of the Roman Empire and was very for a small and limited government. That was Simon the zealot. Now, on the other hand, remember who else you got? You've got Matthew the tax collector a Roman government employee who, it, whose entire job was to collect large amounts of taxes to give uh, to Caesar. So you had two people on the vastly different ends of the political spectrum. And yet, when they begin to follow Jesus, they become two brothers who share tables and break bread. Now, why is that able to happen? Do you know why? Because our loyalty to Jesus must always exceed our loyalty to any earthly agenda. Those two men, they began to see Jesus and said, man, he is my highest allegiance, even higher than my allegiance to a political movement or a political party. And so they united around Jesus, even though they were divided around their politics. Can you do that? This was brought home to me earlier this year. I watched a fascinating debate between two pastors who have been long-distance mentors to me. On the one hand, you had a black pastor who is an incredible theologian, who is also a person of strong political opinions. On the other hand, you had a white theologian who is also a person of strong political opinions. And they set up a debate at a conference that I enjoy attending uh, about how Christianity should relate to politics. And these men could not have differed more strongly. 
on the one hand, uh, this pastor believed that the disease of racism was still the most pernicious uh, disease in our nation. He believed that it was uh, the disease underneath many of the diseases. And that if the kingdom of God uh, cast out that demon, that many other things would come up under the lordship of Jesus. On the other hand, you had a man who believed that abortion and uh, right to life issues were the most pernicious evil in our nation. And if this were dealt with, that many other things would come up under the lordship of Jesus. And so you had these two men who debated very fiercely, and they were very candid with each other and very pointed in their disagreements. But at the end of the debate, uh, they walked from podium to podium to the middle, and they gave each other these big bear hugs, and they said that they were getting ready to go to dinner, uh, each of their families together, to break bread in fellowship uh, and, and catch up. Now, why was that able to happen? Do you know why? Why was that able to happen? That was able to happen because their unity in Christ was deeper than their diversity in politics. You see this? We should feel, listen, we should feel at home with people who share our faith but not our politics even more than we should feel at home with people who share our politics but not our faith. And listen to me. If you don't, you may be rendering unto Caesar that which is God's, your heart. Okay? Now, that's number two. We divide the body of Christ. Number three, if we conflate Jesus with a human system of governance... You will end up giving your life to advancing the wrong kingdom. Uh, I mentioned uh, Dr. Dr. Tony Evans earlier. In a sermon I watched from Dr. Tony Evans earlier this week, he walked out to the podium. It was was hilarious to me. He walked out to the podium and he began quoting a nursery rhyme. It was it was the introduction to his sermon, and he you know sort of drew himself up in a very regal manner. He's an incredible preacher. And uh, he looked long out at the congregation and finally opened his mouth and he said, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And then he told this little analogy. He said, once upon a time, Mr. Dumpty was broken into a thousand pieces. And Mr. Dumpty, he didn't go to his friends or his family or even to his church. He went to the White House. And we know this because the king got involved. And the king was sympathetic to Mr. Dumpty's dilemma. So he called a meeting of Congress. And we know this because all the king's men got involved. And they got together and they decided to pass a fix Mr. Dumpty law. Because they wanted sincerely to make Mr. Dumpty's world a better place to live. But the tragedy was when it was all said and done, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Mr. Dumpty back together again. And then he closed with this line. It is unfortunate today that far too many believers are expecting the solutions to the world's problems to land on Air Force One. Now listen, Bridge family, I need you to listen to me. If it were true that what was primarily wrong with the human race was a broken system of governance then a new and right system of governance would be able to solve all of our problems. But that is not what our Bible says is wrong with us, is it? The Bible, say, the Bible says our primary issue is not a system problem. Our primary issue is a sin problem. So listen to me. Listen. Governments cannot fix what governments did not break. Jesus is the only king who can legislate inside of the chests of men. He is the only king who can pass laws and write them on human hearts. He is the only king that can take rebels 
and make them worshipers, who can make them take thieves and make them generous. He is the only king that can take murderers and make them people who will lay down their lives for the well-being and the welfare of others. And he is the only king who can fix what is wrong with the human race. And to misunderstand this is to misunderstand what is wrong and to misunderstand what is the solution. So Bridge family, as Christians and followers of Christ, we have to embrace the fact that it is your call to represent another king and another kingdom. And when we misunderstand this, we end up giving our lives to advancing the wrong kingdom, a kingdom that cannot fix what is wrong with us. Okay? So we are called to represent another king and another kingdom. Now, last, I want to close with this last. The last terrible thing that happens when we conflate Jesus with a, a system of governance is, and I want to speak to the Christians in the room really quick, okay? I want to speak to the Christians in the room really quick. When we do this, and we verbally or non-verbally communicate that uh, Jesus is very clearly with this party or with that party, arguably the most damaging thing that happens is we put a large stumbling block between people coming to know Christ. Uh, you know, I'm a pastor, and as a pastor, I've got a core belief, and, and here's my core belief. My core belief is that, uh, I heard somebody say it like this recently, that inside of everybody, because we were created in God's image and to feed off of God, that inside of the chest of everybody, it's almost like there's a little homing beacon. And whether somebody believes or doesn't believe, they've got this little homing beacon that's trying to find God and trying to find their way home. And so I, I believe that everybody everywhere wants to know God. Christians have just gotten in the way. <laughs> I, I genuinely believe that. Now, now, Christians in the room, what I need you to know about you is that we are more known for our political opinions than for being salt and light in a broken world. Did you know that about yourself? So I, I'm a pastor, right? And I, I have a lot of friends for, th from throughout my life who are not people of faith. And a lot of times what they like to do when we get together is for, they always need to unload on me about how angry and judgmental and difficult and, and such a, a pain uh, in the backside that Christians are, right? And I always say, oh, brother, I'm with you. <laughs> you know, I'm a pastor. They're in my church, you know? Uh, I, I'm, listen, I, I am with you. You know, I total, totally believe you. They'll say, man, well, what are you going to do about it? And I'll say, man, I don't know. I just know when I'm getting to heaven, I'm asking God to put those on the other side. That's all. I just put, put them way over there. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want those. Here's, here's what I want you to know. Christians, I want you to know that when we conflate Jesus with a political party, there are people of other political convictions who have rightly seen what is wrong with the other side of the aisle. And what they hear, whether or not you're saying it, they hear you calling them not just to convert to Jesus, but to convert to the other side of the aisle. And so what they believe, they say, man, there are so many people in our culture who they may genuinely want to follow Jesus, but they can't see themselves coming to the other side of that line. And when we conflate these things, we put a stumbling block between people coming to know Christ as Lord. Listen, you may win their vote. That does not win their soul. Lost is lost, right? We want people to come to know Jesus, okay? So now listen, let me just speak very clearly to two sets of people in the room. There's one person in the room who you may think that you are a Christ follower. And you may actually be discovering in the sermon that you are an ideology follower. 
And here's what I would say to you. Some of you may have spent your entire life living for an ideology or a political agenda uh, instead of following the person of Jesus Christ. And you may have gotten to a point in your life where you're realizing all that is done for you is turn you into a bitter, angry, fearful person. And what I'm saying today is it's time for you to come home. Would you come home? Time for you to come home, okay? And there are others of you who you have always thought becoming a Christian meant converting to a political party that you have seen as ugly. I need you to hear me, okay? I love you. I got a heart for you. The entire reason I do what I do is for you, so I need you to hear me. He is not calling you to a red elephant or to a blue donkey. He is calling you to a slain lamb. That's what he is calling you to. That is the call of God on your life, just to come and know him. And you may be at a spot where you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this and have these convictions, that sort of thing. Listen, that's okay. Just come and follow Jesus, and he will come into your life. He'll forgive all of your wrongs. He'll make you new, and he'll begin a converting work in your life, okay? So what I want to do today is I want to give you a chance to begin a relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe this has helped you cut through some of the background noise. So if you could do this, if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And if you're in a spot right now where maybe even in this worship gathering, uh, there's a a growing burden on your heart, and that's you. You've been one of those people. You feel like, man, I've followed an ideology all my life, and I've missed a person. Or you've thought, man, I could never do that because I I couldn't convert uh, on these other convictions. Uh, I just want to ask you, I want to pray for you, and I want to know who I'm praying for. Could you do this as just a sign of your desire to begin a relationship with God? Could you just slip your hand up really quick and I want to pray for you. Thank you. I want to pray for you. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Now, if that's you, I'm just going to ask you to do two things. I want you to pray with me and I I want you to give God your heart as you pray. And Father, what we're doing today is we are asking you to come and we're converting to you, Jesus, to you. Father, we're confessing and admitting to you uh, that we have gone our own way and that we have served and loved other things more than we have served and loved you. And today what we're saying is we want you to capture the throne room of our hearts. And so, Father, today I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me for all of my failures and how I've gone wrong, all of the ways that I've served other things more than I've served you. And today, Father, I receive forgiveness and new life in Jesus. Thank you for adopting me as a newborn son or daughter of the king of the universe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.